Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Yo, I'm good, here to rep my hood, do it like I should. See me trapping wood and walking in the sun. Yo, it's never been this good, but the best is yet to come. You can catch me flowing heavy, overflow the levee. Sipping on the bevy, black hoodie, walking vesty. I'm always holding sats, but don't ever try to test me. When I'm rolling with my homie Daniel Matraszewski. Got a whole team and they're waiting in the wings. Candle glow green when it coils and it springs. Handle so mean when I boil with the beam. Cause I vandalize the screen way I spoil with the meme so based. Haters see a paper chase, but I see a human race that is ready for a change. Yo, I'm happily engaged with the faculty. Immaculate displays every day on the galaxy brains. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, Dan Matuszewski from CMS Holdings is our guest. He's a repeat guest. He's back. He was here over a year ago, and a lot has changed in this market. It's a fascinating interview. Of course, we'll check with our good friend, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, as always, to talk markets and macro. Before we get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the disclaimer in the link in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Yo, this beat is from 2012. Four, uh, 12 year old beat. Going way back. Way back. I was young I, Alex. I was really digging in the crates for this one. I don't know if people really realize, but <laughs> not only do we rap, do I rap on this podcast, but every beat I've used is one that I made. You keep uh, like lamenting to me that you're running out of beats, but then somehow I get a text in the morning saying, here's three options. Yeah, I'm digging through crates, dude. Like that's the old terminology when we're talking about vinyls. Um, shout out to my friend Vinyl, by the way. And um, still finding a couple gems. We'll see. I'm trying not to reuse any, you know? Um, yeah, we're gonna have to at some point. Well, we have some awesome stuff coming up on Galaxy Brains, some several interviews already recorded and in the lineup with big, big guests. I know you're gonna like, I don't wanna spoil the surprise. But also, we are launching another podcast out of this production studio. Very exciting. Um, also brought to you by my friend Phineas and his great team. Um, and I don't want to give it away too much, but it should be launching soon. Um, Very soon. We've been working on it. Everyone's. We've been thinking about it and planning it for a while now. It's another big brain. We're going to have we'll a banger, another production from Galaxy Research. We're expanding our podcast empire. That's right. Um, That's right. It's going to be exciting. I know our audience will like it. Let's get right to Bimnet Abibi. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, Bimnet, welcome to Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. So another week in the books since we last talked. I think you you well enunciated the uh, a near-term bearish case for BTC um, last week. Where does it just stand now in your mind? I mean, we've had a whole another week in the books. We've, we're, we've traded sub-40 finally after... Yeah, so as low as like maybe what the 38 low 38s, yeah, 38.5. Yeah, a little bit of stability right now, just at 40k. Yeah, what are you thinking now? I think 40k is is, is kind of a crucial level. Um, I'd like to see us sustainably like have closes above 40k for me to start getting constructive about the market. I think right now what you've seen so far is 38,500 and like the 100 day moving average. Those levels have held us support whether that's from organic, you know, demand or from short covering or from gamma hedging, you know, it's tough to say, but Bitcoin has certainly found support in a region that you would have thought should have been like first line of, of support. And now, you know, in order to, to get more constructive about an upside scenario, you really need to see 40K hold as support. Yeah. Um, right now we're hovering in and around the level and, you know, it doesn't, seem like there's 
genuine, like organic, like robust demand right now. Um, however, what is notable is that grayscale volumes have started to decrease and eventually, you know, that flow uh, will abate. Um, there is a, a level at which, you know, folks are going to stop converting out of grayscale, but that still might be a couple of billion or 10, Could be 10 a billion, weeks even more, a couple yeah. weeks. It's and possible. so generally speaking, you know, I think the, the market is trading pretty healthily uh, or okay. And I, I, I think, agree. I think corrections in a market that have moved 160% in a year, or even just in the last quarter, like the move that Bitcoin had, I think a correction like this is, is very healthy. You know, you're talking about 20 to 30-ish percent, you know, off the highs. I mean, I think that's, you know, as long, like, as long as we kind of hold here, it tells you you're still probably in an uptrend. Yeah. But it really depends on what kind of time frame you're thinking about this stuff, right? Like, I'm pretty confident that, you know, as soon as, you know, the, the grayscale overhang kind of abates, that just the passive inflows are really going to, you know, take this market higher. And so, you know, if you're sitting back and thinking, like, is now a good time to, you know, get into Bitcoin, I think it's an okay time to start averaging in over yeah. time. And, you know, and I think that's what a product like an ETF is for. Right. Right. You, you dollar cost average and you make it part of your 401k allocation, et cetera. And over time, you build a, a reasonably sized position. Yeah. I think it makes sense, you know, to your point about the healthy corrections. Actually, if you look back at the 2017 bull run in Bitcoin, there were like literally like seven 20% plus corrections during that run from $800 to $20,000. Um, I forget the number of corrections from 2021 and or 20 and 21, but there were a similar large number. I mean, people only remember a number it went up, um, but actually it was volatile. Um, so yeah, I agree, totally, totally healthy. You also have, um, look, this is a, a, a wall Bitcoin's got to run through, right? I mean, I think Think about this. People have also been talking a lot about the Mt. Gox coins, which I, I'm of the belief doesn't won't really be distributed for another six to nine months anyway. But we clear those out. You're, you're not going to go to I don't know 100k, a million dollars of Bitcoin without resolving these things. So it, it's a core thing we've got to deal with, yeah. um, and they they will be dealt with. No, I agree. <laughs> I don't want to sound cryptic. And, no, and and I think the the broader risk background is also constructive for bitcoin i mean nasdaq today is just you know up another percent yeah you know um we've had a couple tech names report earnings so all-time high all time for like some a of lot them. some some of the magnificent seven right. names are trading at fresh all-time highs wow household wealth is at you know the the dead highs and the fiscal picture has not improved right <laughs> at, at all and so i think there is you know still constant demand for speculation for store of value and Bitcoin is a combo of the two. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so speculation you know, on it, the future of store of value correct, is one way that correct, I think about it. Yeah. Correct. So you mentioned macro and the macro backdrop. FOMC is next week, so obviously next week we'll talk about it when it happens. But the the market's expectations had been for a nice set of cuts. And then I was it last week that or even the week before we had some very hawkish Fed speak come out that yep. slightly altered it, but it's still, what are your expectations for next week? Yeah, so we've got to get through like a bunch of data, like between now and then you've got, you know, initial jobless claims, you've got the quarterly refunding announcement, you've got uh, uh, PCE data on, on, on Friday. And so, you know, I think the market is going to focus on those data points up until FOMC. 
Uh, but ultimately, like, you know, the data side of me tells me that the Fed shouldn't be cutting and that the data is still super strong. We don't need them to cut. We don't need them to cut. I mean, initial jobless claims printed below 200. Like, uh, like PMIs this morning were in expansion territory and surprise to the upside. And so there, there's a healthy and really good argument to be made that you don't need any cuts. But what I heard from Powell during December FOMC was that he is starting to think about a cutting cycle. Yeah. And he is very aware that in six months' time and in nine months' time that inflation will be at or below target. Uh, or, and they don't or, want or below. Uh, they don't, you don't want below. And, and, and so if you're in a world where you know that you know, inflation is, has come down a lot and is likely coming down further, like why on earth are you having rates at such restrictive levels? And so this is kind of where I differ from the market a lot is – Folks have been pushing back against a March cut, and there's about 10 basis points priced into yeah. that that March meeting right now, which is the first potential meeting where, where they could cut. And I just think that if you think that you're going to have to be cutting in June, in September, and May, like you might as well just get started with a 25 in, in March and signal that you are trying to get ahead of it. Better to like cut and then pause and then cut than to like surprise the market with no cut. Is that yeah? Or it's also just you want to take a more gradual approach, like twenty five right, at, at a time. Longer. Space it out longer, yeah. right? You'll have to if you're trying to do at least a hundred. Like let's say you're about one hundred and fifty basis points too restrictive right yeah. now for current market conditions, right? So that implies that you want to take rates to you know call it three sixty ish. 350, 360, yeah, somewhere, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to, like, mess with the election too much and be perceived going one way Wanted to Wanted to get going earlier right. or have it be well, going uh, already. Yeah, and go at a predictable pace, yeah. and you want to go steady. And so, you know, while there's been Fed pushback from a lot of speakers, in, including Waller, um, yeah. most notably, you know, I, I think you had, uh, you know, Jim Bullard, who uh, retired from the Fed and is now working at uh, Purdue uh, University, you know, he came out and was like, I could see the Fed, like, starting cutting as early as March. Yeah. And he was one of the biggest, like, rate uh, hike guys um, in, during the, the hiking cycle. He was calling for 575 to 6%. Wow. At some point, he's like, when unemployment rate is giving you the gift of, of not, you know, going up a lot, you should be, you know, very aggressive. But now he's just like, wait, where's inflation going to be in 12 months' time? Yeah. And, like, where do you want your rates to be when inflation and is there? This is the soft time? landing attempt. They want to maybe if they see they look forward to where they think the data is going to be, they want to start cutting now so that Sooner. the crash isn't hard. So it's not a hard landing. Yeah, correct. Just trying to, and so just trying to mitigate that. It's a the little machinations bit. of the, the, the flip policy. side to that, though, is the easing you've had in financial conditions. I mean, like, the stock market's just gone up a lot. People yeah. don't, you know, people that are invested in the equity market don't feel poor right now. Right. Um, and, you know, those are the same type of people that are going to be property buyers if mortgage rates come down. And so and there's compounded, you know, wealth effects to, right. to, to this, you know, equity dynamic. And and so I think, you know, there, there's some risks to cutting early um, as well to, to kind of manage. But given the tone of Powell last December, yeah. I, I just think that he's committed to cutting rates. Yeah. And that's all that matters. It's not really data. It's really what like what does Powell want? Yeah. And what what is the Fed actually going to yeah, do? Yeah, and, and and we can debate and you've you've made a case for keeping them higher longer, but also you I mean the, the real question and I'm asking what everyone is wondering is what will happen 
And your point is that he's already sort of locked into this narrative. That, right. yeah, yeah, he's going to be cutting. It's just a question of when and by how much. Yeah. And it's like, do you, do you start cutting in May? Right? Or do you allow five months into the year when you know? Like, if I knew for sure, if I was Powell and I was like, rates are too restrictive right now. Right? If I knew for sure and I was really confident in that view, I'd start cutting. Right. Like, I, like I'd cut maybe in Jan. Like, maybe just in, like, Feb. Start. You just can always pause. You can pause, but it's also Spread doing 25, and, like, yeah. it, the logic is sound, yeah, right? Yeah. Nobody's going to, like, disagree with him that, you know, rates are probably too restrictive given, like, the inflation levels, and we kind of see where things are headed. And so, you know, I think you want to take a more gradual, um, smoothed approach. And, um, it's tinkering. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, I don't know. It's just yeah. fun. I know. I mean, it's it's obviously this, you know, the way the modern economy and monetary policies work. It's just, it's it's just I, every time we talk about this, I mean, maybe because I'm so interested in Bitcoin, that the contrast is just so striking. Because um, now, if it happens in March or May or any time, I mean, right? We have the having in April. Yeah, it lines um, up really well. Yeah, just just like last time. Yeah, and it also, you know, potentially Again, the Fed might be tapering its 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 quantitative uh, tightening. So they're know, easing in rate, perhaps in rates and in balance sheet at yeah. the same time. Bitcoin is uh, credibly supply. and automatically tightening, yeah. quote unquote. And and I mean, it's just ongoing. that narrative writes itself. It does. It does. Someone should ask uh, Chairman Powell when he goes before Congress, like. What his comments are on the Bitcoin having, I think, would be a really great. I question. would like to ask him, like, "Hey, buddy, did you see the the CBO's projections of where debt to GDP is going to be in thirty years' time?" This is your big hobby horse, and you're like, right. It's like two hundred and fifty percent from a uh, congressional budget office what that is, the, is like, like, yeah. like not telling you like the full truth. Like either. you're an economist, sir. Like, is that sustainable for a nation? Yes. Like basically, I mean, this goes back to the whole idea of like fiscal dominance, right? Monetary policy is going to be dominated or heavily influenced by its need to finance the debt. But, for the but yet he refuses to talk about it. The but main he, purpose but for it. He's like, well, Congress sets fiscal I know, policy. But I, I know, I get yeah, it. And they have this need to so remain independent. It's absurd to me. <laughs> well, We're it's... just spent. And like, it's like you can't win with either party. They're just going to both spend yeah. more. Yeah. Right? You've like, said this. Nobody gets elected saying they're going to you know, cut spending, really. Either the Dems are going to increase spending like crazy or the Republicans are going to cut taxes like crazy. Like, like, yeah. And your deficit's just going to end up being like absurd. Yeah. There's and a cognitive like, di dissonance. Of course, we know why he doesn't want to come out because it's political, quote unquote. But in reality, it's not political. It's simple math. And it's also, if you're saying one of the main things driving central bank policy, to not talk about it. It's just like, and pretend that it's only unemployment and inflation that is what's driving your policy like that yeah simply I mean, can't be true i completely agree with and, it, and, and, and going forward it definitely won't be true then they really will have to be thinking about it every the, every day then, they don't and and then the other part of it is like you know that when you expand the balance sheet right that is permanent debt being added to you know the, the economy and the, yeah. and the and the balance sheet and like you know you can't tell me that it doesn't impact inflation and demand like when you increase your balance sheet by six trillion dollars in a short span right like that has led to a permanent increase in demand yeah and so the inflation issue is is perpetually going to be there right if you have to cut rates and manage the balance sheet around you know the the fiscal spending right like and every time we have job cuts and shit 
unemployment benefits. Here's some more money. Here's some checks in the mail. Like, it's just like, it's hard to stomach. Yeah. And the problem is just the time disconnect. Like, that's a trade for the next five, ten years, you know, versus right. monetary policy right now. And so it's just, it's just tough. All right. Bimnetta BB. Bimnetta BB, my friend from Galaxy Trading. Thank you so much. Let's go now to our guest, Dan Machiszewski from CMS Holdings. Dan, welcome back to Galaxy Brains. Excited to be here. It's always fun talking with Dan. Dan's been in the market a long time. CMS is, I asked you this last time, no limited partners, solely you and your partner's own capital. Gives Dan a very interesting, unvarnished, unbiased view of the market. Um, so I always like talking to him. And so much has happened. I think it was November of 22 that you were on this show last, and it's been over a year. Gosh, I mean... <laughs> What would what 23, if you had to characterize 23, how, how would you? We started at 16.5 and Bitcoin ended at like 40, 42. A lot of other stuff happened. What was the year like? Back in 22, it was bleak, right? Like, I don't know. It was just, everybody was falling down. Um, every lender died. Like, the borrow got sucked out of the market. Everybody got delevered. A lot of stuff like folded. So I, it was just like, that was like, actually, when I was on here, it was probably pretty close to like the, the the dreariest it looked for a while and then like markets do what they do they bought them they sell quite a bid like the etf narrative kicked off and when did they start making comments about it like february i want to say march well yeah so march or so i think was the oral arguments in grayscale and then bloomberg's litigation guy elliot stein upped the odds i forget what they were at that point but then the discussion was like okay um but really june i think when blackrock filed is when it really sort of kicked off with the etf right and that's been like a huge tailwind um i think also something that's been pretty big that like doesn't necessarily get as much play is um the ftx claims got pretty good value which obviously went in conjunction with the market but a lot of people i think were able to exit that and get some cash i think that was like actually a pretty good stimulus back into the market and also just like that not being a zero like helped a lot of sort of folks out there like that's like money that sort of like came back into the ecosystem. I mean, a lot of stuff got hockey stick saved, um, like Solano being the biggest like performance, right? Like that like came to life, brought the ecosystem roaring back. Um, a lot of people got up on positions there that gave them risk capital to do other stuff. It reminded me a lot of like 2019 sort of coming out. Remember like when the Facebook thing, the Libra was like the narrative instead of the ETF. I mean, the ETF's more real, like Libra never went anywhere. And I think the ETF like has like more of a like, actual like, change in sort of supply and demand structure but anyway like, like people just like got risk appetite again um and kind of had been up until like the last like week or so um and then we've seen like some material selling people taking some risks that they ran i mean stuff got a little frothy like i mean there was some random stuff that was just like tripling over the course of a week that like like i mean there was some real meme coin mania yeah there were dog tokens on every chain right yeah there was like there was like a lot of like pure just gambling um going on which is fine like i have no like issue with people doing that but like there was a little bit of mania going on in there. I guess like the thing is, the question's been the last two months, is it just the same pool of capital recycling or have we seen like new, like sustained inflows from either retail or has there been any like real inflow from institutional stuff into the ETF side? Um, I, I think the ETF stuff we got, like, like I've been saying that I think since we get it, like it's going to be some time to really see what that looks like, not to get too caught in the weeds of like the first couple weeks or months. Um, so we'll see how that baselines and what like accretive flow sort of like comes from that. But I think a lot of the longer tail asset, like whack-a-mole that was going on, it was like a lot of the same capital, just like recycling. Um, I don't think there was like a ton of new like retail interest that was like pushing stuff through, um, which is good in the sense that there's like latent demand. That's not, it's not like you're like at this point where like every like spare capital dollar that's out there, like that wants like crypto risk is like deployed. It was kind of just like people got rich because they're like assets 
had like recovered so much from the like the bottom that they like got a little like more aggressive on the risk curve i think that's how we were sort of seeing that like play through um i think that the real material flows for bitcoin in particular will be like what the etf does over the coming weeks to months and then like ETH like is sort of going to have like the same like thing or like is there going to be like material flows um in there like what is that sort of like people keep talking about this may date i think that's like way too soon but like there'll be like potentially that narrative too um on the etf offering so anyway that's like so like look so stuff's way better than it was last time we talked like oh yeah no doubt about that yeah like things feel great like yeah like sure the most recent history is like a little like annoying but like we're we're much better as an industry right now i think so yeah i don't know that's there's been some material selling though yeah there has in 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 just sort of the last week or so a lot of people were asking leading into the etf launches if it would be a sell the news event I think it was hard for people, you know, look, obviously, if we look at price, we see that it, Bitcoin price is down materially, I mean, over 20% from launch day. I, I, I think that that might give the sell the newsers too much credit, because I really view this as a sell the structure event with the grayscale unlock, we're going to call it. Keep in mind, we didn't know grayscale's fees until Monday morning of launch week. And so I think it is possible if the fees had come in much lower that you wouldn't see the level of of selling and, and redemptions there that we have been what's your thought on that overall i mean i think the biggest bogey is just um ftx like chucked a yard into it right like the estate like john ray like launched into it i don't know if that's confirmed yet but it seems pretty much um coming from the right sources that like that contract. so that was like a, that was a big one-off that just got like pushed through i think there was also just like a lot of people that had bought that thing at a discount um so you gotta remember when like 3AC was blowing up, BlockFi was blowing up, all that stuff. Like a lot of that grayscale risk, like some of it, the estate held for FTX, but some of it also just like ended on other desks in Chicago who like took it on as like a pair trade. I think a lot of that got like just chucked. So like there were people that like wanted to unwind this thing. And like that was sort of the level. And like, well, obviously when it like got out there, like they're going to be offered on it. Um, the premium or the discount in this case is like coming in, which I think is like showing that that's abating a little bit. Um, there's going to be people that are going to like want to rotate out of it. And that's going to be probably for the life cycle of that thing. Like nobody wants to be holding it versus competitors. There's a lot of tax consideration that um, needs to be like put in for a lot of those people that are stuck in it. But like, I mean, the, the, the chart today is right. Like that's like what the AUM is going to look like for grayscale. So it's going to just continue to go over time. It's just the amount of people that like want to sell it to take risk off versus the amount of people that want to sell it to like replace deltas and the other products. Um, and I don't know what the breakout of it that is great, but like, obviously it was front loaded with a lot of people that like wanted to use that liquidity. Um, and it trading back to par is like a word opening with the ETF. It's like a way to like get off positions that they had put in that thing lower. Cause if you think about it, like a shit ton of Bitcoin traded at like very cheap levels in GBTC over the course of like years that like wanted to be sort of realized. So anyway, I think that was like the, yeah. the big bogey. Like the fees hurt though. Like it's not. I don't know. It's like not great. Like people definitely want to get rid of it. So it's like this toxic sort of like thing in the market. But it's not like people keep saying, oh, they have 28 billion. To sell. It's like not like all that that people don't own that to sell. Like It's not like people suddenly don't want Bitcoin. They just like don't want it in that vehicle. So they like want to take it off Delta neutral. Um, it's just like optically, I think people have like they just keep looking and they're like, oh, there's outflows. It's all selling. And like it's like actually if you look across the complex, there's net issuing like there's net what is it, like 750 million as of today um, inflow? So like, it's still like positive. It's just like, nobody wants the grayscale version of it and they got to get into the other products. And there's some people that just like naturally want to sell it. So that's sort of how I view it too. I do wonder about that net that the Bloomberg guys are talk about, you know, could that some people be selling Bitcoin to go into it? Like, could the Delta be being replaced from elsewhere? I, I don't know. 
But I agree with you that like the real thing to watch is months, not not days or weeks. I think these products are primarily designed for financial advisors and they're not really here yet. So um, I don't think it's, but you know, that unfortunately that the unlock is here. <laughs> supply side. Yeah, so I mean, it's the biggest sell. supply event. Yeah. In basically Bitcoin history. But I, I you know, I saw somebody uh, uh, tweet this today and I agree with that, that, you know, to really move forward with like a major bull run, you're going to have theoretically grayscale unwind to some either. I mean, it won't go all the way. I agree completely, but it, but you know, to some amount equilibrium um, and then you'll have Gox payout maybe in the summer uh, or, or in the fall. And that's pretty much it. Um, in terms of, you know, known, I guess you've got to get some U.S. government coins, but it's pales in comparison to the size. Yeah, of those two, though. Yeah, the Cox thing is so hard to get a feel. I, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, really been, been watching it for a decade now. Like, I just like, I'm so skeptical it'll ever happen. But I saw people were tweeting about like today because some emails went out like saying that the if you had selected an exchange to get your payout to that that had been confirmed. And so there was a fresh round, I think, this morning on Twitter of like, you know, Gox FUD. But you know, as far as I understand it, I've talked to some folks that the, the, this thing's not going to be distributed until the summer, probably at the earliest. So, but either way, we get through these two walls and then there's finally, let's hope, you know, knocking on wood, hopefully new overhangs. Well, you get a halving in there too. Yeah, well, exactly. And you get the halving. So that should be positive. I think at least for narrative, Dan, I want to ask you too. I asked you about last year to this year, but what about over the years? You're, you've been, you're obviously, you run a buy side fund now, firm. But you've been on the sell side and, you know, used to do trading at Circle. How is the sell side, pick any, I don't want to go all the way back. I think we did this conversation a little bit um, the last time you were on from like sort of Circle days and like Polo days to today. But so much more has evolved. Uh, you talk about the lenders blowing out. What does the sell side look like to you now? And to what extent do you think the ETFs, like say if you get options on the ETFs, um, you're getting margin now on ETF shares. How might the ETFs further uh, evolve what the sell side looks like in crypto? Yeah, it's a good. So I, I tend to be the assumption that like a, a good slug of liquidity will pull into the ETF vehicles um, like as time goes on. I mean, that's going to take a little bit longer. The options, I think they just submitted for approval, right? They're looking at like 20 days timeline, I give or take. So let's call it a month. Um, the vol market, I think is the most likely one that could get shipped. Cause like Deribit right now, like sort of owns that. Right. And like, people don't really want to trade the CME, uh, the options on the CME futures as much, but I do think that like counterparties that are looking to trade vol might shift towards the options complex on the ETF, just cause I don't know how people feel about like facing Deribit necessarily. And like, it's also would be good to like diversify that, like risk a little bit but right now like it just very much is a derivative show so anyway i think the options thing might like move over more than like the spot necessarily will um but i do think a good amount of spot volume will start to like come through i dude i would love to have like u.s hours of like trading is like actually like a thing <laughs> instead of like this like constant nonsense all over but like that is just like also not ever happened despite like whatever like institutionalization yeah the pain trade is on that topic is that tradfi ends up moving to 24 7 instead like they move to where bitcoin is rather than us to where they are. Yeah, it's very <laughs> possible. I mean, like, age is going to not stop, right? So, um, right. yeah, I, it's, I think it's a pipe dream. But anyway, I do think some a good amount of spot on... I think there's people that would trade physical that were institutionalized that would prefer not to, that will, like, use the ETF. I think that's, like, the biggest shift. Like, the crypto-native people are not going to... Like, I think there's very few people that are, in the, that are trading other things in crypto besides Bitcoin that are suddenly going to want to be using the ETF product because your capital gets locked out of, like the ecosystem, right? Like this is a big problem. You go, this is a lot of reason that guys like didn't move over to CME futures is that if you're trading the ETF 
first of all, you're only locked into those market hours. And the second problem is like, you can't go and do other stuff, right? Like you can't suddenly be like, oh, I want to go trade Solana because there's no like corollary product in that ecosystem. Like if you're not balance street constrained, it's a less of a concern, but like pretty much everybody's balance street constrained in the crypto side of things. So I think that's like the biggest gating factor for like all the volume going over. Is it just like the product suite isn't enough? Yeah, let alone DeFi or especially if we talk about ETH that's going into these ETFs. Oh, even yeah. I mean, especially if you're going like way out there on the curve, but even just like to trade the other majors, like you got no option. Yeah, there's no real way to go from Bitcoin to ETH even. Yeah, yeah you, just, you can't do it. You're just like, I don't know. So I think that'll like gate some of the like stickiness of that being like the only vehicle people traded via. Yeah, I think that's why this really ends up becoming a product for long-term financial advisors that maybe rebalance like a quarterly their clients, right? It's not really a competitor to the crypto investment and trading ecosystem um, yet, <laughs> I guess yet is. Yeah, I just, I, I like, I, I don't think it's as much a threat to Binance or Coinbase as people think it is. Like, I think a lot of people keep making that argument like, oh, Coinbase is toast. Like, I just like, I don't think that's true. Or like free compression and all that jazz. Yeah, we have to hope that people are, whether from in this ETF world or just generally people are learning how to actually use crypto assets, right? I mean, I think you you know the, the this audience and you know the value proposition for using Bitcoin quite well, right? That, you know, it's it's money that you can't seize, that not even the government could theoretically seize it unless they, you know, kick down your door or get your private keys. But if we go out onto the spectrum with something like ETH or, or Solana, where there's really quite a lot to do on the actual blockchain, uh, you forfeit all of that if you use an ETF. So we, we hope that there are people who who realize that and they actually want to use the thing, not just, you know, invest in it. Yeah, I mean, I think we, like, know a good idea of, like, what the amount of capital is that, like, is less, like, caring about, like, actually using it. Like, like, like Grayscale's been around for a while, right? Like, you can use that as, like, a proxy of, like, how much of the float, like, is sort of looking to just be in that ecosystem. And like, oh, and my daddy comes yeah. to being is like not actually like touching any of the rails, like just like, hey, give me deltas, and like I don't want to think about it. Right. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You mentioned Binance, Dan. Uh, since we talked, uh, the CFTC, the SEC, charged Binance. Uh, they have civil cases against Binance. Obviously, Chengpeng Xiao, uh, CZ, was charged and pled guilty uh, to a variety of. If I recall, mostly, you know, like AML violation type stuff, um, sort of similar to what Arthur Hayes ultimately pled guilty guilty to. Binance, uh, foreign, you know, real big Binance, forget Binance US for now. I mean, who cares about it? It's never was that big. But Binance, Binance, it's still up and running. How important is it to the market still given all that's happened? And how do you think it will remain a core part of the market structure? Yeah, I think it's still tremendously important. I also still think it'll be like I... Here's the thing, right? Like they kind of didn't like there was very material change to that business on the back of this, right? Like they said they did some stuff wrong, they paying a gigantic fine, but they're still operating, right? Like CZ isn't running it, but as far as like the outside observer is like it's still operating sort of the same. Um, I think that's huge. I think that's a really good thing for the market too, is that that thing didn't get shut because it's such a liquidity point for so many things. Um, so I think it's like got a great future ahead of it unless there's some like other lurking thing we don't know about but like i don't know like the doj has been through it now and like they paid their fine they move on like i don't know it feels pretty good that that like that was a very good outcome in my opinion obviously we don't know the final like verdict of what like happens with cz but like the fact that it's like still standing functioning pretty much identically as it was before barring obviously some changes to like so the thing is like i actually think most of the changes that they made on the kyc and aml and like sort of the like internal tooling they did to like block stuff. Like I think that's happened over the last two years as the investigation's been going on, right? Like you wouldn't continue to keep doing business that you know they're like actively looking at. 
like through that time frame. So like, I, right. when they're like, you know, so this isn't like the dude just like deciding a Thursday to come at you. So I think it's good. Like, I think it's a great outcome for them and sort of the market, like on the other side of it. Um, I don't know. That's like sort of my take. I think that makes sense. I mean, I, if I recall from the various allegations, they were really all from like 18, 19, 20. Um, so to your point, I think they probably have been mostly doing or trying to do what they're now being ordered to do, which is, you know, AML, KYC type stuff. And so I, I think that's probably right. What about the ongoing monitoring? One of the things it looks like they had agreed to was that, I guess, DOJ, not SEC or anyone that I can tell, although how the internal government agencies share data across the agency, I'm not sure. But they're going to be sitting there, I guess, over their shoulder, primarily looking at making sure they do KYC. Does that make it more trustworthy? Is this a stamp of approval from the Department of Justice in your mind? I think you're like less likely going to have to be this like lurking like oh do they like they're going to finally look at this thing and then like it's going to get shut down right like because it's like it's like hey we're here we're like paying attention it's kind of like how you felt about tether after like the New York AD like got a crack at it right and you're like all right like they're aware like they're paying and like because I think they had an ongoing monitoring too that was like part of like the thing on it I do think that the IRS is going to get a look at everything like I think that's like going to be like a big like bogey for some people. Um, I don't know, but like, I think you should be assuming that they're going to have like any records of any U S transactions for like tax purposes. Yeah. If you owe money to the government, you should be paying it people. You know, I would that. say that they're going to put the picture together. Cause they basically have like a look into everybody now, which was like an inevitability, I think. Cause they have FTX as well. They definitely have FTX. Yeah. So anyway, I think that is like one of the bigger pieces that they wanted that for, um, is to like monitor that. And your point too, is that like they could have charged CZ or, and, and would have, I assume if they had found that, he had stolen client funds the way that Sam Bankman Freed had, right? And oh, the fact yeah, that they I think that's off the table, yeah. I mean, that's our core concern, right? I mean, right, in the scheme of things, obviously, like, you know, because we care about the world and and we, we don't want them to be, like, allowing terrorists or, or criminals or whomever to use the exchange, sure. I mean, we all agree on that. But in terms of the existential market risk, it was all about solvency, and it doesn't seem like there's been any evidence, and you think they right? We, we seem safe there. It seems, I don't want to like, you know, I'm knocking on wood. Oh, in no world would they have let it keep operating if they thought it was like running fractional. There's just no way. Like, that'd be so weird. Right. Right. Like, like all right, we got you on the AML thing, but like, the, like, yeah, like there's no way. Yeah, I, I agree. It feels, it feels de-risked at least for them. It doesn't mean that there's, you know, it's not gone completely, but as, as it never is with any centralized exchange, but it feels de-risked post that DOJ action there. We'll wait and see what happens to CZ, right? There was a thing they were going to let him go home and then the other judge, the more senior judge above the magistrate said, no, you have to stay here. Presumably he's in the state somewhere waiting this thing out, right? Yeah, he's got to be, right? That's what they said. He had to stay, so <laughs> yeah. he, he is somewhere. Yeah, so when we talk about, uh, you know, I guess non-American uh, billionaires in crypto, I asked you last time you were here about Justin's son. Uh, in fact, what I said was, who's the best trader in crypto and why is it Justin's son? And you have a great dialogue. We won't replay it for the, well, maybe, you know what? Let's go ahead and roll that clip real quick. Justin Sun might honestly be the best trader like in crypto. He just absolutely top takes it and he like absolutely bottom takes it constantly. I mean, he like also creates the bottoms and tops. That's yeah. crazy. I mean, I mean how like, big is that's he? a pretty I don't know. I would wager four to five billion dollars if I had to like guess. And I'd say like half that's trading proceeds and like half Goodness of that is gracious. like just Tron related stuff. We're back. Dan, <laughs> what's going on with Justin? He, I just, and this is purely an oddity, I, or maybe it's not an oddity. Is, is Justin still very important to these markets? So he's less important right now because like 
Huobi is less important and like Polo is less important. So like, I, I think that is why his like sphere of influence is like shrunk somewhat. I mean, he still like does like run like a large project, right? Like I just, I don't know a ton of the situation, but as far as I know, it's like, there are still gating withdrawals, right? So like, you're not using it. So like that kind of like puts the nail in the coffin on that thing until it gets fixed. And like I Polo, because it's like entity adjacent to Huobi, like you got to feel like the same sort of risk, like on it. So I don't know, like I, his sphere of influence there has like definitely been like knocked down a peg. But as far as that though, like, I mean, he still like operates a chain, like he's still sort of out there. I don't know. He's big on DeFi still, right? I mean, as far as I can tell. Unless the wallets are tagged wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but he did, did he give up uh, or did he lose his uh, honor? He was an emissary, what, to Granada? Yeah. Was that, Gran- right? I, that was, that was, that was like a bought <laughs> position, I like think. So I think that was just like, <laughs> it expired. I think once it like publicly had gotten to a point, they were like, we can't like do this anymore. So they got rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to ask about Justin because he is truly, a, in my mind, a creature of these markets in a way that almost nobody else uh, is as like a sort of archetypal of the the oddity uh, that crypto markets are versus traditional assets. The guy is, I mean, right, the Tron white paper was almost word for word plagiarized from Ethereum. I mocked it uh, to an audience of Fidelity uh, guests when I was head of blockchain research in 2017 as an example of a like a crazy like ICO that was a, a scam and yet Tron is still quite large and particularly in stablecoin markets. Yeah, it still moves a lot of tether. Yeah, it's pretty wild. All right, a couple other questions for Dan before we let him get back to the the screens. You're wearing that Pith shirt. I do have a Pith shirt. Yeah, it's like a data thing on Solana. It was something to on Oracle. Maybe Oracle, Oracle, yeah. On, on a bunch yeah. of chains, yeah. You like Pith? Uh, I mean, yeah, we, so we participate, like we, um, pump pricing through on that oh, cool. sort of trade activity. So like we're, we're connected to them. Um, yeah, so it's definitely, I, I forget how many things, I think their goal, they said they want to be on 3000 apps by the end of the year. Um, connected to, I forget what they're at now. I think they're probably about a thousand. So it's, it's, it's a big slug of sort of like Oracle pricing that's out there. Um, and they have like some pretty good data sources that feed into it. Like, so obviously like we're one of them, but like there's a bunch of other like traditional sort of like finance folk that have like hopped on. So um, we'll see where it goes, but so far, but so good. Yeah. What else do you like? They, they, the Pith started, you said it's a multi-chain now, but they started in the Solana ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it was very much. You talked like, about the yeah, run-up. Yeah. What's the Solana? Solana? What's your take on Solana in general? How do you, where do you, where does it fit in this new world? Right. So I'll say this, like, I think there's like obviously been some like material activity on that, which is like given a little bit of lift. I think also like people have to remember like Solana got whacked the hardest. So it's like bounced the hardest. So I think there's a little bit of like, I said this on like another like podcast thing too. I think like a lot of people infer that like, because it's roared back so much that like in, in like, I don't know, what are we low at? Like $8. So like call it you 12 X or whatever up. But, like, at the same time, like, it fell the hardest from, like, so, like, there's just, it's just trading, like, more volatile to a degree when you, like, zoom out a little bit. So, like, that that I think, because there's other stuff that's, like, rallied a bunch, too, and you don't see people being, like, oh, ETH's dead, people are moving to, like, Sciacoin <laughs> or whatever. So, I think I, I don't like the narrative stuff as much, but there is, like, material stuff sort of, like, happening on it. Dude, RIP David Vorick Sciacoin. Is that not alive anymore? <laughs> that, it's a, look I at it. It's that. rallying. Let's go Boston-based uh, uh, blockchain companies. Um, I think he's not part of it anymore, though. I don't think he is. I, don't I think, think he's working on something else. Yeah, I don't. Does it? Does it? It exists though. It trades. <laughs> That's what matters. Um. Anyway, so <laughs> I, I do think some of the some of the ETH Solana. I agree, it's price, but also 
Um, it's meaningfully different, right? SVM versus EVM. It's monolithic versus this modular blockchain thing that people care about. And then also, like, in particular, NFT markets. I've got a guy here who looks at this a lot and, like, it really did, like, outpace and grow NFT markets dramatically. Um, it was crazy. Yeah. Look, there's, like, there's, there's real things happening. I mean, like, we keep the material positions in both of them. Like, we're not, like, I just, I think it's wrong to be, like, one's, like, cannibalizing the other. Like, I don't necessarily buy that as much. But, yeah, there's, like, real projects that have, like, sort of, like, chosen a stick and, like, issue on there or things that are being built that, like, effectively can't be built, like, sort of elsewhere. Well, if you don't buy that narrative, then how, how are you thinking about something like an ETH Soul Cross or an ETH BTC Cross? Uh, those are two very different questions, but... So we generally just don't pair trade this stuff like that, um, mostly because I don't think we have, like, edge in it. Um, and the second being, like, I don't know... Like, I think if you have, like, a, a trade... you So if you look at, like, ETH Bitcoin, you're like, I want to... I think ETH Bitcoin is going to, like, rally. Like, generally... My thought would be like, you probably just want to be long ETH. Um, and then if your thesis is like, well, I like want to do a Delta neutral, I'd be like, well, try to like sell like a basket of stuff against it as opposed to like, I, I just like, I, it's too hard in my opinion. And there's too many idiosyncratic things that can happen to like individually like pick the crosses or at least we can. So like, if it works for other people, they should absolutely do it. But like, I don't know, people put up some like wild like pairs that they like try to trade. They'll be like, yeah, I got like a... <laughs> Thesis on like yeah. the AVAX Aptos like cross. Like, I <laughs> just like don't. I think like, there's a, another way that's safer that you can put that trade on. Just being individually like short legs is like a bad like I, I don't know. There's, it's just hard in crypto. Yeah, I, I I mostly think of them as just expressive of a narrative, and I really don't look to honestly. I really have never looked past ETH BTC in Crossland uh, until thinking about ETH Soul again to help judge like is that just purely a narrative or is it a real thing that people are talking about i think eat btc remains somewhat relevant um but you know it, it's it's actually quite hard to to think about what happens next i think it was easy to sort of see leading into a bitcoin etf that it should make lows and it did and then of course when bitcoin dumped from 49.1 on launch day it rallied eth btc um, but now it's kind of like hard to see figure out like what's because i i tend to believe there's huge regulatory overhang for ETH. It doesn't exist for Bitcoin. But on the other hand, if, if ETH is about to get an ETF, then it's, it's really just not clear uh, where, where it's going to go. Also, but if you also just like zoom out on it, it's like kind of incredibly stable. Like it hasn't really moved much since like six years or whatever. Yeah, since 21 in particular, it's basically been in the same range for four years or three years at this point. Anyway, it's it's an interesting one to think about. Anything else that you're particularly interested in in the space? Talk about Pith and Soul and ETH. Uh, what else are you watching? Any categories? Man, we've just started like we, like we're late to this. Um, digging into the Bitcoin, DeFi, and like L two sort of stuff. Like, I mean, there's I'm very dismissive just because of like how historically this has not been a thing. There really seems to be momentum and like people are trying to like give this a go. Um, so we we're trying to get rapidly up to speed, and we've got a couple deals now. Um, people that are looking to build sort of stuff like on top of, I guess, like, what do you want to call it? Like DeFi for Bitcoin? Like, is that like, I guess the, the narrative you want to call it? Anyway, like Bitcoin as a platform as opposed to Bitcoin as a monetary asset. Yeah. So I don't, I'm willing to give that a shot. I think that's like got some legs on it. I think there's also just like enough like sunk assets in like the Bitcoin ecosystem that it's not a bad place to sort of try and give it a go. So we've been, we've been doing a lot there. Like that's where we've been spending like a lot of like resources, like trying to get up to speed. It also just seems to be an incredibly bigger thing in Asia. And I think we're just like generally late to it here in the West. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I've seen quite a lot of this. I've been, we've written about ordinals a lot at Galaxy. We've, we've done research on it. We're interested in it as well. 
I, I do, like you, I struggle. I, I see a lot of building happening. I see a lot of enthusiasm, even a lot of newcomers to Bitcoin even, or people coming back because of it. That all seems quite bullish. And then on the other hand, I say, well, Bitcoiners have fought for years to keep this stuff out of the protocol um, or to be, this is where I say, you know, monetary maximalist versus a platform maximalist. Is Bitcoin primarily a monetary instrument, a fixed supply, scarce, censorship resistant, you know, uh, anti-central bank money? Or is it a decentralized network upon which to build stuff? It's obviously been the former very dramatically for years now. And I do, I struggle to see like the platform take over. But on the other hand, then you look at the volumes and there's a, quite a lot. <laughs> a lot of right. So, yeah. It, that's like the one thing that I think that matters is like real, there's been some real volume inside this. I mean, because there have been pushes in the past, like forever. And like they always just like got crushed and like they never went anywhere because they would either get blocked technically or they just like would not be the enthusiasm to sort of get them over the hurdle from the community in it. So, God, because like what was the first, this like started back with like MasterCoin and like Counterparty and stuff. Like, yeah, this is just like, exactly. Tether and Omni and then. And then people try to build our, our well, RGB has been built and used. And then there's root. There's there's always actually been some. Um, I guess the question is, is this finally the time that, you know, it, it becomes more mainstream? I think personally, I'm of the view that if you can, can get performant L2s that looks look and feel similar to the L2 environment that is growing on ETH and elsewhere, there's really no reason you couldn't see a big, you know, breakout for this usage on Bitcoin, especially if the L2s, like I know in the op stack, the OP stack, like they want to build the super chain where they all connect to each other. You don't even have to go through ETH. Like if they can like bring a Bitcoin one into that fold, then um, I don't, I don't see any reason why the L2 uh, users from other chains wouldn't also use that or try. And that's not even talking about unlocking Bitcoin capital, right? Just sort of connecting to it. You, okay. So you, you reside in the state of Massachusetts there are some very unfavorable politics for Bitcoin and crypto in Massachusetts. I know Matt Walsh, our mutual friend, is is often apologizing on our behalf. What are you doing uh, to solve this for the world, Dan? And uh, when will we see a uh, Senator Dan Machashevsky representing us uh, in Washington? Oh, no, I got this way too much baggage on me. I don't... I... I say this a lot. So I, I got involved in the last political cycle pretty big. Um, I helped spin up a super PAC. Um, GMI, right? Which is good, yeah. And the guys who ran that actually do the fair shake now, which is Coinbase's big thing. So they kind of ran with it, which is good because they have way more money. Um, and that <laughs> makes a lot more sense for A16Z yeah. and Coinbase doing it. But that's the same guys who were the political brains behind that move there. Anyway, and that was actually good. I think we raised like 10 million bucks or something like that and sort of got pretty active on the primary side. Here's the big thing I learned. You're, Elizabeth Warren's not going anywhere. She's like basically dug in like a tick. So like you got to get used to that. Like unless she takes a higher office position, she's, which at that level has got to be like a cabinet or try to actually give a go. And so she's there. Like she's actually extremely popular in the state. People don't like her, but like she's very popular here. And like my own opinions aside, like she's like sort of stuck in. Um, I think the biggest thing that I like took away from all that was that like there is really not that much opinion for or against uh, crypto from like candidates like most people really don't care so one big thing is like it's not a voting issue like the general voting public does not care um and like i know coinbase loves to like throw that number of like i don't know whatever it is 500 million people like own crypto worldwide and like 150 million americans on it but like it is it, like that's true fine but like they don't they don't vote based on that and like the things they care about are just like not related right so it's not an issue with candidates and it's not an issue with voters which i think is lost on the crypto community who are so passionate about it and be like, how can this not be like, so like if their random house of reps person, like is talking shit about Bitcoin, like it doesn't move the needle for them either way. 
So like a lot of them are just like voting along with like the party line sort of with stuff. So the good thing about that is they're not hostile. Like that was like something I noticed is there was not really a lot of like hostile. There's a handful of people obviously that like everybody knows and can name, but like there's a lot of upside in that they mostly just like don't have a formed opinions either way. So I think it's like, I was cautiously optimistic in that like, this isn't like a lost battle or like a problem. It's mostly just like a battle of apathy. But like the counter to that is like, it's very unlikely stuff's going to go through Congress because nobody cares. It's just like, does not have enough like inertia as like a problem or even something that needs to be addressed that you're going to like really see it get pushed through legislatively. So I think that's like why we've been stuck with dealing with like the appointed people like Gensler in offices because like Congress just like refuses to act. And I don't think they're going to, unfortunately. I think a lot of people want them to. Maybe there'll be a stable coin bill because that seems to be big enough that they care now and it's dollars. But like aggregate crypto getting like a full comprehensive like markets sort of bill, I just don't see it. There's just not enough, like people don't care. Um, but it's good. So here's the other thing is like candidates pretty much along their like age, like went as you'd expect. So younger candidates were pro, older candidates were against. And like, that's good because like time only works linearly and like this will only like get better in our favor, right? Like those candidates will get like, like some will retire though that doesn't seem to be a thing they do. Um, and some will like move into slots, right? So like it, it, this will sort of get better with time, but it is a little bit of a generational thing. And I don't yeah. know if you can shake that entirely because like older candidates that are incumbents, like they kind of don't listen or care. And they don't have to because yeah. it doesn't like matter for their voting. So I don't know. That's my take on like my drop in. I would say this. If you want to get involved personally, anyone, you should definitely reach out to your local reps. But also like if you ever like want to like actually like give politically, like give at the local level to like your candidates that you like want to support or whatever. Because like that, that's kind of how you get in front of them, to be honest. Like it sucks, but like that's how it works. Well, it is, it is what it is. Money makes the world go round. Uh, my friend Dan Machaszewski from CMS Holdings. Thanks for coming back to Galaxy Brains. Anytime. That's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thanks to our guest, Dan Machaszewski from CMS Holdings and my friend Bimna Abibi from Galaxy Trading. That's all we have. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.